The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Support for this show comes from the Festival of Faiths, an interfaith celebration of music, poetry, and dialogue with internationally renowned spiritual leaders. The 2017 festival runs April 19th through 24th in Louisville, Kentucky, with a talk by the Dalai Lama. Details at festivaloffaiths.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Before I introduce our guest, I want to invite you to join me in Nashville, Tennessee, March 24th through the 26th, for three days of wisdom, music, and love as we celebrate the publication of the World Wisdom Bible and initiate a global spiritual movement rooted in the interdependence of all life and the ethic of compassion and justice that interdependence demands. To learn more, please visit us at oneriverfoundation.org. Our guest today is Sadvi Bhagavati Saraswatiji. In addition to being president of the Divine Shakti Foundation and secretary general of the Global Interfaith Wash Alliance, an organization dedicated to bringing clean water, sanitation, and hygiene to the children of the world, Sadviji holds a PhD in psychology from Stanford University and was the managing editor of the 11-volume Encyclopedia of Hinduism. She's also director of the International Yoga Festival held annually in Rishikesh, India. Spirituality and Health Magazine is a sponsor of the festival. Sadviji, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much. It's such an honor and a joy to be here. So I want to start with your own story. So tell us how you you grew up in, in the L.A. area. I did. I grew up very close to Universal Studios, and I went to Stanford undergrad. I was then doing my PhD in psychology in 1996 when we took a semester off to go and travel. I had my dissertation left, and it was just time for a travel break. And the only reason actually as embarrassing as it is to admit it 20 years in retrospect that I even agreed to go to India was I was a very staunch vegetarian or vegetarist as my friends used to say and in India I knew that I wouldn't have to grill waiters in a language I didn't speak about whether there was chicken broth in their vegetable soup or in the water that they used to boil rice. So we went to India. I was not expecting or searching or seeking or yearning. I was not religious. I was bat mitzvahed to make my grandparents happy. It was just what you did. And when we got to Rishikesh, after putting our bags down at the hotel, I said, I'm going to put my feet in the water and walked down to the river. And as I said, I was not expecting spiritual awakening. I was not searching for it or longing for it in any way. It wasn't even part of my worldview. 
And it happened though, before, before my toes even touched the water. And it was such an incredible experience. And wherever I looked, I could see the divine. And whatever I was looking at, whoever I was looking at, I was just seeing divinity. And it was so, so, so beautiful. And I just was crying these tears of ecstasy sitting on the banks of Ganga. And I knew this is where I'm meant to be. This is home. And that was the beginning. It was like a veil was pulled off my eyes. So that's, you're coming from a Jewish background. It sounds like a secular Jewish background, not religious. Yes. yes. So you didn't have this sense of divinity before. You're sitting on the banks of the, the Ganges. And thing, thing is, you're saying that you, you saw divinity, you, you, you experienced the manifestation of divinity in, with, and as everything. How did you know, since you didn't have that kind of language, what, how did you explain it to yourself then? I did not explain it verbally. It was a long time. I mean, even now when people say, so what exactly happened on the banks of Ganga? It is still really difficult for me to articulate. At the time, it was such a, an experience, a, a physical experience, a physiologic experience, obviously a spiritual experience, an emotional experience. It was not a verbal experience. And it was not something, fortunately, that I was called upon or required to explain. And even for me, having been a serious academic, the experience was so powerful that it just put my logical thinking brain to sleep for long enough to just let the experience happen. The only things that my logical brain would pipe up with every once in a while were, so, okay, this is home, we're supposed to be here, but where and how and in what capacity and doing what. But in terms of the actual spiritual experience, it just, it was like this wave in the ocean that just drown any requirement I had for a verbal explanation, for a semantic explanation. So I didn't have any way to explain it to myself. But like you know that you have fallen in love when you fall in love the first time, even though you've never been in love before. In the same way, even though I didn't have a background in which this fit, I knew what had happened, even though I couldn't articulate it. But interestingly, at the time, articulating it was so unimportant. I mean, I was just experiencing it and it was so perfect and so beautiful that there wasn't even this aspect in my mind of, okay, well, and how exactly would one describe this? Or what's, what are the semantics of this? It, it didn't even come into the picture. Right, you're experiencing it from the inside and didn't have a need to to objectify it. But exactly. something led you to your guru, right? How did, how did you find him? Well, my connection with Paramarth Nikathan, the ashram that my guru, Puja Swamiji, is the 
president of. My connection with the ashram began actually as just my pathway between walking from the hotel to and from the banks of Ganga. It was beautiful. It was clean. And so I used this pathway to get from the hotel to the banks of Ganga. And one day I was walking through the ashram and I heard a voice and the voice said, you must stay here. So I looked around to see who had spoken because, of course, if I heard a voice, someone must have spoken. And there was no one. And in my entire sphere of experience and reference, the only people who heard voices were schizophrenics. And I really hoped I wasn't going schizophrenic. And so I did what any self-respecting scientist would do, which was I ignored the voice because if there was no one and I wasn't schizophrenic, clearly I hadn't heard a voice. And about 30 seconds later, I heard it again. And even though I had never been religious and I was not even one of those people who say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I was deeply committed to truth and always had been. For me, that was really my religion. And so when I heard it the second time, as crazy as it was to admit that I was hearing voices, the commitment to truth would not allow me to ignore it the second time. And so I looked up and I saw a sign that said office. And I went in and told them that I wanted to stay. They were perfectly polite, but they told me that in order to stay, I was going to need the permission of the president who was out of town. And I said, okay, well, when is he coming back? And they said, maybe tomorrow. Now, being American, I understood maybe tomorrow to mean maybe tomorrow, not I have no idea. Right. And I would go back every day saying, so when is he coming back? When is he coming back? And they would say, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow, which I only later learned is the Indian English for I have no idea. So, you know, go away. <laughs> and but finally, he did come back. And it was when I met him for the first time, it was an incredibly powerful experience because in the Jewish tradition, as you know, there's no concept of God coming onto earth in form. And I had never questioned that. I mean, I was a 25-year-old non-religious person. And in the presence of Pooja Swamiji, I, I felt just palpably that I was in the presence of divinity that was different from the divinity that I was seeing in everything, that wasn't like, you know, God had left wherever God was and had just come here, but that this being in front of me was different and 
qualitatively different from any being in whose presence I'd ever been. And that that difference had to do with a, a transmission, an embodiment of divinity. And I said to him, you know, I want to stay. I didn't tell him I had heard voices, of course, but told him that I wanted to stay. And he said, you are always welcome. This is your home. I mean, it's a really long story, but he said, this is your home. And I ended up staying. There were a lot of other pieces, a lot of other synchronicities and stories and whatnot. But that was really the beginning. It just was absolutely clear to me beyond any doubt whatsoever that that was where I was supposed to be. And when I met him, he really served as the glue that brought all of the other pieces of the experience together. What had happened on Ganga, what I was experiencing, what I was feeling, and yet with okay, where, how, doing what am I supposed to live here? Wow. So obviously you you figured that out, but like you said, we're going to, uh, it, it gets to be a longer story than, than we actually have time for, but this was really fascinating. Let, let me ask you, uh, before we get to the International Yoga Festival, let me, so, so, so you settle in to the ashram. Can you give us a sense of what the practices are? Is there is there a formal meditation? What kind of yoga? You know, sure. what, what what do you do? And maybe if there's something you can actually teach the listener, you know, if, if there's a mantra that you repeat that you can share something or, or not. But just give us a sense of what what your practice is. What makes Parmarth Nikathon so unique is it's not focused on any particular tradition or any particular form of the divine. And so we've got people, you know, most of the big ashrams in India are focused on one particular practice, one particular form of the divine. So Krishna or Shiva or the divine mother, one particular way of worship, or just one particular guru that everybody who's there is there because of this one guru. And what makes Parmarth really so unique is that we have people who come in from every walk of life, every religion, every culture, every tradition. And the only real rule is that you have to be using your time there to get closer and closer to God. But nobody's going to tell you exactly what that has to look like. So yes, during the day from early morning until late evening, there are so many different programs and activities from morning prayers to yoga classes to meditation classes to the evening world-famous Ganga Arati ceremony, the lighting ceremony, and satsang. And of course, we're all deeply involved in seva or service. It's an intricate and inextricable part of the spiritual practice that we have at Pramarth. But in terms of what 
each person does. There's no cookie cutter approach that says we all chant this mantra or we all worship the divine in this way or we all practice this form of meditation. Because what Swamiji realizes is that everybody's coming at this from a completely different place with a completely different constitution. I mean, it's almost like an Ayurvedic perspective to spirituality. You know, if five people walk into an Ayurvedic doctor with a headache, the Ayurvedic doctor is going to give them five completely different remedies because even though the symptom is the same, that which has brought each of these five people to the headache is different. And in the same way, that which brings people who come to the place that they are at, even though it may look like the same place, is vastly different. And so the practices all really vary. The only non-negotiable part is the service part. Is, you know, Swamiji always says, if you don't feel like serving the world, it means your meditation is not deep enough. Because the most natural outcome of that meditation is an experience of oneness. It's an experience of expanded consciousness. And the most natural outcome of an experience of oneness and expanded consciousness is service. It's not service of giver to receiver or server service of one who has to one who doesn't or great humanitarian to the needy, but service of self to self. And that's, that's the non-negotiable part. Mm. The meditation practice, the chanting practice, we all have it. But I think if you asked 20 of us to describe our daily practices, you would get 20 different answers. And that's because he really is sure that everybody's getting and doing a practice that is what they need to take their next step to get closer to God. Wow. Sounds fascinating. While you're talking, I'm actually looking at photographs of the ashram and I I see immediately the the attraction. I mean, it's, it is just a gorgeous place. In the couple of minutes we have left, tell us a little bit about the International Yoga Festival. The International Yoga Festival is extraordinary. And it is something that we hope people will come to from all over the world. What makes it so unique from other festivals all over the world is the integration of all aspects of yoga. So yes, of course, we bring in these really well-known, top-of-the-line teachers of all of the different yoga lineages from all over the world, whether it's you know Kundalini yoga or Jiva Mukti yoga or Iyengar yoga or Vinyasa yoga, you know, whatever the stream of yoga may be. We're bringing in top expert uh, yogacharyas and all of that. And yet, Patanjali spoke about eight limbs of yoga, beginning, of course, with the yamas and the niyamas of how we live. 
how we practice morning to evening, what our, what our inner world and outer world look like, and then moving all the way up through into samadhi or bliss, divine connection. And our goal really is that over the seven days to give people classes and courses and experiences in the first seven limbs. You know, we always say you can't really have a class in samadhi, but if we can give you the first seven limbs by the grace of Ganga, by being in a place to which saints and sages and rishis have come for thousands of years and practiced their meditation and attained enlightenment, a place on the banks of the Ganga in the lap of the Himalayas, that Ganga takes care of the samadhi parts. But we're really, we're really committed to bringing in not just asana practices, but meditation practices, a lot of spiritual talks, a lot of bhakti yoga, a lot of different aspects of yoga to give people really a fullness of the experience. That it's not just that you come and you're hamstrings get loose and you lose some weight and you get, you know, gain some muscle, but that you've actually been transformed. That's, that's really our goal. We always say the teachings, the touch and the transformation. And that's what our goal in the festival is, is to bring together these highest teachings and through bringing in the saints and all of the spiritual aspects that touch. And then the transformation that just happens because it's such a holy and sacred place. Wow, you did an excellent job summarizing what sounds like an absolutely amazing event in just a couple of minutes. And that does bring us to the uh, the end of the, the, the show. But this is really fascinating. Sadvi, thank you very much for uh, you know sharing your time with us and uh Really, hopefully enticing some people to see if they can attend the yoga festival. If you'd like more information on the festival itself, the website is internationalyogafestival.org. So, Sadviji, thank you very much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful. Our guest today was Sadvi Bhagawati Saraswatiji. You can learn more about her work at sadviji.org and at internationalyogafestival.org. Support for today's broadcast comes from the Festival of Faiths, an interfaith celebration of music, poetry, and dialogue with internationally renowned spiritual leaders. The 2017 festival runs from April 19th through the 24th in Louisville, Kentucky, and it features a talk by the Dalai Lama. Details can be found at festivaloffaiths.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log into spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. <laughs>